This is the Comp Effect Podcast. When you focus on workers' compensation, you'll have a safer work environment, more productive staff, lower expenses, and you'll crush your competition. We're sharing real-world stories, actionable tips, business-friendly advice, and information to help your business. I'm your host, Todd Tams. Enjoy the show. All right. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Comp Effect Podcast. Todd Tams here. Uh, I'm excited. We've got a great episode lined up for you today. Uh, A gentleman that I met recently by the name of Mark Pugh, who is called the RX Professor. Uh, He... Dude, the guy, the guy is awesome. And Mark, you're awesome. I guess I shouldn't say the guy is. Mark, you're awesome. Uh, just to give everybody a little background here, I pulled this from your LinkedIn page. You speak everywhere in insurance, legal, healthcare conferences. You're all over the country. You published to workerscompensation.com. You're a published author. You're a founder of the Transitions. There's just a long list of things that follow behind who you are and what you do. And I'm just honored to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Todd. I'm, I'm privileged to be with you. I'm, I've been uh, interesting to get to know you better, um, to listen to your podcast and the 17 different business ventures I think you have. I mean, you're, you're, you're a true renaissance man, so it's a great privilege to be with you. Thank you. I guess I just, I like to be busy and I like to do fun stuff, right? <laughs> well, you're doing both. So, so uh, just to give the audience here a little background, uh, Mark, you and I met through a colleague, Claire Musselman, who introduced me to you. And then we were on a transitions episode. And then I think we kind of wrapped afterwards and just really, I think, had a great conversation. We're like, let's get on the podcast and let's talk about drugs and opioids and work comp and all the things. And you're like, yeah, let's do it. And so here we are today. Yeah, when when somebody says let's talk about drugs, you know, you you had me at you had me at drugs. So you know, we'll 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 take it wherever you want to go with it. <laughs> oh, so drugs and workers' compensation, and it, it's interesting. The more I dive in and the more I research on this, I mean, the opioid epidemic is bigger than I ever thought it was four or five years ago. And if you're in the workers' compensation field, like what you are, where you where you manage claims and you see things. I mean, it's it's a serious problem going on right now, and and it has been for a while. Um, you know, fortunately, I think work comp of all the payers uh, from an insurance and healthcare standpoint has done a better job earlier on about the opioids, Medicare, Medicaid, the VA, um, private pay. They were all a little bit um, slower on the uptake, but work comp really had this epiphany um, that I call it probably back in 2013, 2014, when we were doing Medicare set asides. Um, and those MSAs were coming back with, you know, six figures uh, of settlement cost. And a lot of it was associated with prescription drugs. And most of those prescription drugs were not really meant to be used for the rated life expectancy of 32.6 years. They were meant for short-term use and duration. And I think that was a wake-up call. Um, I've been kind of the John the Baptist in the wilderness since 2003, um, talking about the dangers of prescription painkillers. Um, creating products and services around it. And it wasn't just prescription painkillers, right? It wasn't just the Oxycontin, the Percocet, and the Tramadol, and the Hydrocodone. It was the Xanax for anxiety. It was the Soma for muscle relaxant. It was the stool softeners because you couldn't poop. Um, it was the Ambien to help you get to sleep and the Nuvigil to help you wake up. You know, so as I kept looking at these drug regimens, not only were they, they were getting more expensive, but it seemed like there was always added symptomatology. There was always side effects coming from the drugs 
So every drug has a side effect, both positive and negative. And sometimes those negative side effects create the need, at least in the mind of those who aren't um, aggressively pushing back against it for another drug to take care of that side effect. So what can start out as a one or two drug regimen becomes five a drug regimen, eight drug regimen, 12 drug regimen. And I was first starting to look at this in 2003. I saw all of these uh, claims that had these crazy drug regimens that didn't make any sense when I just went to the free website, drugs.com, made absolutely zero sense to a non-clinician. Um, and then you kind of reverse engineer back to the beginning. And it really started with the prescription of, a, of, of an opioid. And it started all these cascading side effects that created the need, so to speak, for more drugs. And then you get to a situation where there actually is more harm than good that's coming from the drugs. And that then it's time really to take a step back and go, what can we do differently? Because uh, we're, we're, we're Einsteining ourselves to death and doing the same thing, expecting a different result. So from the... That's a lot of information there. So let, let's kind of go back to the beginning. From what I read online, I guess, I mean, I don't want to quote Marilyn Manson, but I don't like the drugs, but the drugs like me, right? Mm -hmm. I've never liked the way that I felt on, um, uh, I believe it was Percocet that I took, or what do you call it, Traldol? Tramadol, Percocet, yeah, Vicodin. Those I, are typically the first stage. For a lot of people out there, they don't like the way that those drugs make them feel. But for a lot of people, it's pain management and they get accustomed to them, right? Yeah. And, and there's, you know, a lot of times we talk in terms of addiction, um, not necessarily the DSM-5 kind of definition, but, oh, you must be addicted to the Oxycontin or the Percocet. And actually what most people are, they're either dependent or developed a tolerance to it. The tolerance means, you know, this, the same five milligram doesn't work anymore. So you got to get 10. The dependence means that you're going to have a physical withdrawal from it. Um, and oftentimes I've talked with a bunch of physicians um, around the country and uh, to, to almost to every one of them, they say that sometimes people are continue to use these particular drugs, not because they're addicted, because, but they're be afraid of the withdrawal symptoms that they'll have to go through if they stop using it. So to your, your example, you took maybe one or two of the Percocet and go, man, this makes me feel woozy. I'm not in control of myself. Um, I, I can figure out other ways to do this. And you didn't take the other 28 or 29 pills that they gave you. Um, and there's a lot of people that do that, which is why we've got the issue with the medicine cabinet being oftentimes the primary source of prescription painkillers and other dangerous drugs uh, to the black market. So what do you think? Like if I'm a, uh, as a business, you know, with a couple hundred employees, we've got people out on work comp claims. What can I do? To, or what can I as a business owner look out for to make sure or to make, to even see if people potentially could be abusing or double dipping into the opioids on a workers' compensation claim? Well, that, that, that's a deep question. <clears throat> I think the, the, um, the first answer really is education. And, I, and, and this I've had a couple of sessions with employers around the country where it was in front of the, the employees and trying to educate them on let's make a good choice. When you have an opportunity to manage pain and everybody has that opportunity at least once in their life, how are you going to do that? Are you going to do that through drugs? Are you going to do that through deep diaphragmic breathing? Are you going to do it through stretching exercises? Cause that's how you start your day. You know, are you going to do it through mindfulness? How, how are you going to manage this pain? And let's make a decision up front that you're going to select the treatment option that has the most benefit with the least amount of risk. Everything comes with risk other than deep diaphragmic breathing. I don't think you can die from taking deep breaths. 
um, unless you forget to exhale and then inhale again. I, you know, but you got bigger problems if you have, uh, you know, issues with deep diaphragmic breathing. But, you know, most everything has side effects associated with that. So I think the first thing that employers could do is to actively engage with their workforce before a work comp injury or a non-work comp injury happens and says, here's some pain management techniques that you may not necessarily know of because your doctor is fully focused on drugs or that's all that you've ever gotten in your in your life or that's how your parents managed you know, they, they had, they use medicinal bourbon for the, you know, there's all sorts of ways that have pain management has been modeled to us. Um, and so I think the education is really important. And then I think it's really important also to understand if they start down this path, um, when the CDC guidelines came out in 2016, they very clearly said that you can use opioids in the acute and for chronic pain, but it should not be the first line therapy. You should try non-pharmacological treatments first and then non-opioid treatments next before you go down this path. The CDC guidelines were very clear that at three days, you start to develop a dependence or maybe even addiction on the prescription painkillers like opioids. So you gotta pay really close attention. So the first thing to do is to educate. The second thing um, is to engage early if you see prescription of opioids um, in that first trench. If, if they get there's really no rationale for someone who has a sprained ankle and to get a 30-day supply Percocet. There's absolutely no commonsensical reason for that because your sprained ankle pain is going to be gone in two or three days. And that's when you end up with the 27 extra days that end up, end up, end up in your medicine cabinet going elsewhere. So getting engaged early, understanding what they're taking. Um, and if you see red flags, um, you know, in a perfect world, you would test them in advance. There's a variety of tests that talks about their uh, potential for catastrophization, their potential for addiction. And you would do these kind of tests before they even take that first drug. We don't do that kind of due diligence. But certainly if you see someone who, you know, is taking opioids or anxiety drugs or other things longer than they should, or you start seeing that compounding side effect where you start seeing the stool softener come in because they can't poop, that means the opioid-induced constipation is starting to mess with their insides. And why not do the root cause analysis rather than adding more drugs to it? Why not address the opioids that are inducing the constipation? So looking for those red flags and really kind of paying attention to what's being done. Um, I, again, the first choice is to do the right choice up front. And in some cases that may be opioids, but if they didn't make the right choice or the, it's second guessed and they're having dish issues with that, you need to identify those red flags and get someone engaged, nurse case manager, you know, a, a really refined claims adjuster, the a medical director, their supervisor. You know, one of the things that I've noticed a lot of times, and I know your, your primary audience is employers, is they oftentimes when someone has an occupational injury, they almost treat them like they're no longer an employee once they filed a work comp claim. They never talk to them. They don't interact with them. Um, they're not a part of the team anymore. And really something very simple employers could do that help is just send a card, text them before they go to surgery, have flowers waiting for them after the surgery, stay engaged with them, invite them via Zoom to your team meetings. So because the litigation um, really compounds things and, and that makes matters worse. So I don't know if I answered your question. I, th I threw a bunch of uh, threw a bunch of stuff at, at it at the wall there, but hopefully at least to start. You, you I, well, I have a couple other questions that came out of that, but uh, I'm 100 percent in agreement with you um, from seeing from seeing work comp injuries firsthand. Um, I think a lot of times that injury goes off the rails when employers don't communicate. And I don't I. I get that we're all busy 
And, uh, you know, it's, it's a concerted effort, right? It's, we actually have to make an effort in our day to reach out to that injured worker and have a conversation with them and follow up and see how they're doing. And I think we also need to recognize for some of those people who are off work longer than a month, there's a huge struggle going on at home. I mean, most, most partners in life depend on each other for certain job roles, right? You know, you do this, I do that. And when you take one of those people out of the equation and the other person has to pick that up, they're dealing with kids. Maybe they're doing grocery shopping. Maybe they're mowing the lawn, all of those things. It just, it, it can create additional mental strain at home that, that wasn't there before the injury. And I think that just naturally manifests itself into this happened at work. And maybe that becomes a little animosity toward their employer who's now not communicating to them. Absolutely. And that's why in 2011, I started talking about the biopsychosocial treatment model because we were so focused on a biomedical, some kind of injection or surgery or therapy or drugs. And we forgot they were a whole person with an emotional component, a psychological component, social interactions. As you mentioned, they may not be able to pull their weight um, at home. And that creates a, a an issue from self-esteem for them because they're not able to, they don't feel like they're you know, um, participating, it can create animosity with the other people that are pulling their weight, um, you know, in that family and kind of taking on for them. Um, you know, I mentioned how pain management is modeled, you know, not everybody grows up with a nuclear family, not everybody grows up with uh, an appropriate way of responding to difficult, challenging circumstances. People grow up in alcoholic families, people grow up in substance abuse issues, you know, people grow up with um, physical abuse and neglect, um, socioeconomic circumstances, social determinants of health where they didn't get a good proper education. You know, they don't ma- they don't, don't maintain proactive, uh, you know, health care. You know, they, they've got diabetes. And rather than addressing the fact that they're 100 pounds overweight, eat Taco Bell for dinner every night and don't exercise. Instead, they're satisfied to t- just take the insulin. You know, if you treated your body better and you, you lost the weight and you figured out a better nutritious, you know, I've, I've known a number of people who were, uh, you know, diabetics and were on insulin that wean themselves off of it just by treating their body better. And so, you know, not everybody comes into an occupational injury or any kind of challenging circumstance with the, with the same kind of mindset. Um, and that biopsychosocial, just what you were talking about, that has an influence and impact on how they process pain, their, man- their, their may- ways of resilience, the way that they maybe catastrophize and will linger, um, you know, or have that animosity towards their supervisor. Maybe they hated their supervisor all along and, and you know, this was just kind of part of, the, part of the deal. And maybe the employer treats work comp as an HR opportunity to get rid of the people they didn't like. I mean, there's all sorts of different dynamics associated with this, but I think if we limit it to just what's physically wrong with you and we forget what's going on inside your head and what's going on at home, um, we can miss the boat on so many opportunities to help people get better faster. To, I 100% agree with you. And I think that to, to go back to what you said, uh, looking at HR as an opportunity to get rid of this person, I think this is a great, when you have that injured worker, this is a great time to have HR make a raving fan out of that injured worker. Mm-hmm. Why, why your company stood by them, took care of them, um, should be genuinely interested in that, in that injured worker. I think when you care about your people, they care about your company. Um, you'll have less turnover, all the good things that go along with that just by simply showing a little compassion. Yeah. And I think it's, um, uh, Bronson, uh, 
what's the dude's name? Virgin Atlantic and all that. Charles. Brand- Charles? No, he's the actor. <laughs> Charles Bronson. <laughs> I know. Um, I follow him on Twitter. Um, yeah, but he, he made he made a comment in regards to his corporate culture uh, in that if you can't treat your colleagues um, well, you're not going to treat our customers well. So his whole focus is customer service starts inside the four walls of our company. And if you treat each other well, if you treat each other with respect, if you treat each other um, you know, with the, the, the golden rule kind of approach, then that's going to naturally ooze out um, to your actual customers outside those four walls. So Richard Branson, that's his name. Richard Branson. There you go. I knew it wasn't Charles Bronson. It was like, a <laughs> Oh, what a day today is. Yeah. Me... <laughs> so uh, one thing that, that I don't know the answer to that I wanted to ask you to see if you know, um, I struggle when it comes to opioids. You know, the, the only experience that I've ever had with opioids in my life has been, you know, when I had a knee surgery, they give me seven days worth. And I think as part of on the health insurance side, as part of the Affordable Care Act, they've limited quantities that people can have for, you know, post-surgery, right? But that's not the case with work comp when there's ongoing pain management. True. Um, one of the things that happened is kind of an outgrowth of the CDC guidelines is that three-day um, when they go, you really, you really should stop at three days, five days, seven days, reassess the pain management plan, not give them 30 days, and then we'll see them 30 days from now. So a variety of states took that. Florida did a three-day um, uh, uh, um, cap on acute pain. Uh, I believe um, New Jersey maybe was five days. There were, New York was seven days. All the different states kind of had different numbers. Um, when you caught, so that doesn't affect chronic pain. They, they went to great pains to say this is only during the acute phase of pain. Um, work comp, though, lives under those same constraints, right? So a state-mandated work comp system maybe has a drug formulary like Texas or uh, Kentucky or California, and they have certain constraints on what you can do and what you can't do and what requires prior authorization, what does not require prior authorization. But ultimately, they all live under the health statutes of that state. So, you know, if Florida, which doesn't have a drug formulary and doesn't have treatment guidelines, but does have a 3A cap on acute pain, it doesn't regard, it doesn't matter whether the prescriber is prescribing for an occupational injury or breaking their ankle, playing basketball on a Saturday, doesn't matter. Three-day cap is it. Um, and then they're going to come back to it. So, you know, there, there's a lot of constraints. And that, that's what makes comp so Hotel California-ish. Because once you get in, um, you either run away with your hair on fire. It's like, um, what, what did I sign up for? Or you can't find the door to leave because it's so complex. It's so nuanced. There's so many different levels. And for those claims adjusters that are managing work comp claims in multiple states, their head has to explode at least five times a day as they're transitioning from how Iowa does it versus Illinois does it versus Minnesota, the way they do it, South Dakota, you know, all of them, you know, there's some commonalities, but, you know, that 20% that's different is really, really different. Um, so that's where you got to really understand what, what the state guidelines, if there are any from work comp stay. And then what the, the broader specter of what the health guidelines in general, what a prescriber is going to do regardless of, of who the payer is, whether, you know, again, private pay, Medicare, Medicaid, work comp, it doesn't matter. There's a cap on that. 
And so, you know, I think um, a lot of people are getting used to it. Um, most doctors are not prescribing 30 days anymore. And not just because they can't necessarily per state, but because they understand the DEA is looking. Um, they're evaluating prescribing patterns. Every state except Missouri has a prescription drug monitoring program. And that data, as far as who's prescribing what, how often, what frequency, um, what dosage, all that kind of stuff, that's being evaluated by uh, the, the Department of Pharmacy, by the Department of Health, by even in law enforcement in some states. And they're looking for prescribers that are doing more than they should, uh, prescribing more dosage, higher dosage, more pills, um, you know, constantly doing the same thing over and over and over again. So there's a variety of reasons why prescribers are, are, are kind of self-policing to some extent at this point. And they're going, you know, I could potentially write 30 days, but with all the stuff that comes with that, I really don't want to. And so, you know, one of the arguments I've made as states have been implementing these lower thresholds is it actually does make sense to have an office visit after three days as opposed to 30 days, right? So, you know, after three days, your condition is going to change and the Percocet that might have been appropriate on day one isn't going to be appropriate on day four. So that means payers from a work comp standpoint are going to have to pay for more office visits. And so, you know, you get the natural pushback and go, no, we don't want to actually add cost. Well, if you think about what the costs are for not doing the right thing up front, for not engaging early on, for not managing this very closely and just kind of letting it, um, you know, go for 15 or 20 or 30 days, you know, your costs are going to be a lot more. That's something that you talk a lot about in regards to the duration of disability and, and, and how those costs associated, um, you know, come back to haunt you in your, in, in your insurance premium. It's kind of the gift that keeps on giving because you're not only paying for this claim, but your experience with that claim is going to modify what your premiums are like there. So why not do the right thing up front? Why not be very proactive up front? Why why not, you know, engage the best services and the best treatment up front? Um, and so I think there's a lot of self-policing because there's so many incentives to not do it the old-fashioned way, which is what happened five years ago. Um, you know, not do it the old-fashioned way. Do it the way that guidelines and common sense dictates now. I'm always a fan of common sense. And the, I just want the best outcomes, right? The, the problem is, where, is when we get granular on claims where we think, there's no claim and maybe doctors are like, Hey, I need you to go refer. It's refer, refer, refer. Right. And then the only one that makes money, unfortunately, is the, the medical system at that point. But I, mm -hmm. even those, the, the experiences that I have on that are so few and far between. I mean, th those are the one-off, I think 99% of all claims that are, that are legit. Let's focus on the care and the right care for the people and uh, making sure they see the right physician and the right provider. And just, like, I don't know, you hear all the time, right? Where there are, the insurance company forces them to maybe the cheapest provider down the street or the provider with the bad practice. When in all reality, they get a better outcome if they go to, you know, part B or part C or part D or whatever that provider is. I think you know, people just need to advocate for the healthcare and the outcomes that they want. And they ought to talk with their adjuster and be very vocal if you're going to the wrong place. Yeah, I, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the old Fram commercial, but it's um, about the change in the oil and it's pay me now or pay me later, right? And I, I think that that slogan, that adage is, is accurate, right? I mean, you can pay for the best treatment up front. You can select the doctor who, has, who does four knee replacements a day as opposed to four knee replacements a year. Guess what? Practice makes perfect. 
Um, now, is that doctor that's doing four a day a little bit more expensive than the one that's, you know, begging for work, you know, every quarter? Maybe. But the possibility of reinfection, the possibility of readmission, the possibility of them leaving a glove in there, you know, when they're doing it. I mean, there's so many things that can go bad if you if you don't make a good choice from a provider standpoint. And so, you know, I always advocate my, my tagline is educator and agitator. And one of the things I'm trying to both educate and agitate is that everybody needs to be aggressively, um, uh, proactively engaged in this. The injured worker is not along for the ride. They are not a passive passenger in the work comp claim. They should be asking questions. They should be taking notes. They should be pushing back. Um, they should be advocating for their best services. The claims adjuster, if it doesn't make sense, they should push back. They should advocate, hey, we're going, we're, we're not going to do the status quo on this one because this has some potential red flags for going south. And if we do the status quo, um, chances are this is gonna, not going to go right. So let's think outside the box. In fact, let's pretend there's not even a box. Let's figure out what's right for this particular person at this particular time. Physicians, you know, if they're not getting properly reimbursed, you know, for their time, I mean, they're not a philanthropic organization. Um, you know, they're not price gouging. They're just trying to get, uh, you know, um, accurately reimbursed. You know, if you need to spend uh, 30 minutes with them, going through their social background, going through their family background, going through what's causing the lack of resilience, what's causing the negative side effects and the symptomatology from not necessarily doing the right thing, not being compliant with the treatment, then do the extra 15 minutes and charge them the ex expanded fee. And the payer should be willing to pay for that extra 30 minutes because they know that the provider is gonna be able to ask a lot of questions, get a lot more input, subjective and objective, and be able to make a much better decision than something rash that happens in five minutes based on a quick uh, you know, uh, verbal interaction where they can't really you know, feel, feel willing or feel uh, able to share. So I think everybody needs to, you can't have everybody in the driver's seat, obviously, but for, from your perspective, you need to be assertively, proactively, managing this as if it was you. For the injured worker, it is them. They're advocating for their best care. But the claims adjuster needs to advocate for them just like it was them or their mom or their dad. The doctor should be advocating for their care just as if they were providing that care for their mom or their dad. I think the golden rule, you know, it, it, the golden rule is not the one who make, has the gold makes the rules. That's not the golden rule I'm talking about. The golden rule is to treat others like you would have them treat you. And that ultimately, I, I, I don't know if it's a tangible or intangible, but the return on investment, and I think Claire is one of those opportunities to talk about return on investment, right? She does the right thing. She thinks outside the box. Her whole team thinks in terms of recovery as opposed to workers' compensation. And by virtue of that, they've reduced their cost. It's not an accident. By doing the right thing up front, it's not an accident that you get better results. I think she told me the other day too, and I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here, the way that they focus on claims and build the relationships with those injured workers has led to less lawsuits for bad care. So by doing the right thing, they're actually saving money on the back end. Yep. And to, to, to go back to, to, to what you said earlier, the injured worker is not a passenger on this. If somebody's going to do surgery on me and cut me open, you best be sure I want to make sure they know what they're doing and that they, uh, that they've got good outcomes. They've done this before. And I'm going to ask a lot of questions and that injured worker needs to do the same. Uh, 
I'm not going to say that there's not bad companies out there or bad adjusters, but sometimes bad things just happen. And those people have caseloads that can be immense. They can be working in multiple States. You never know what they have going on in their life. And it's okay just to slow that whole process down and make sure you're getting the care that you deserve at the doctor that you want, rather than maybe doing what somebody tells you. And to dovetail into that, I mean, if you know anything about the medical industry, they very rarely refer outside of their relationship family. I mean, if I'm ABC healthcare company, I'm going to refer you to see a specialist in ABC healthcare company, even though there may be a better one at DEF company, but mm -hmm. that's not how I get reimbursed. That's not how I get bonused. That's against my company contract with my employer. So we're not always, we're not always doing the best thing for the employee. We're doing the best thing for our company and referring within. So be injured workers. You need to be a vocal advocate and businesses. You need to be a vocal advocate for them also. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of incentives, like you said, and motivations for, you know, everybody in, in regards to that. And I think it's really important to kind of keep that in mind. Um, it's just, it, it, it just, it's so much common sense to think of it that way. Um, but that's not historically how work comp has worked. And it's been, you know, since I've been in work comp for 30 years, I've, um, you know, I've, I've seen the Titanic and I've seen, um, before we hit the iceberg, I've seen it, you know, turn around. I've seen that cruise ship kind of turn and the turn is very, very difficult and challenging and slow, um, but it can be done. And I, I use this example. I, I say this example frequently, you know, drugs are, drugs are the easiest thing to do, right? Dr drugs are the easiest thing to prescribe. They don't require a whole lot of forethought. It's almost like a Pav Pavlovian response. Oh, you got pain. Here's your 30, 30 pills or 60 pills or whatever of that. And so when I started talking about cognitive behavioral therapy, which is psychotherapy, which is a part of that biopsychosocial, um, I did a presentation in my home state of Georgia uh, back in 2016. And I was talking about the value of cognitive behavioral therapy and digging deeper and not just throwing drugs at it, but actually understanding where they're coming from and helping them through maybe the most challenging time of their entire life. Um, and I had a friend sitting out in the audience and he was sitting uh, at a table with two other work comp uh, folks. I'm not sure if it was management or, or claims adjusters, whatever. Um, and as I was talking about it, my friend overheard them say one to another, why would we do that when pills are so cheap? I'm really glad I didn't realize that that happened until afterwards, because I probably would have been on the nightly news <laughs> uh, rushing out to the audience um, and berating them. But that, that's so small minded. Right. Um, so it's not about the it's not about the cost now. It's about the overall cost. And, and what that requires is people that are big thinkers. Right. You can be a small thinker. Um, and think just about the day, just about today, just about this particular claim at this point in time, and just think about the motivations and where you're coming from. The big thinkers think about the big picture. What's the total cost of that claim? What, what happens if we do the right thing up front versus doing it after we've screwed things up? You know, what's all that cost associated with? How can we front load good stuff so that we don't have the bad stuff at the end? How is that going to decrease the duration of disability? How is that going to decrease the amount of settlement? How is that going to decrease the amount of litigation? Um, you know, anytime litigation happens, that means animosity um, has occurred. Bill Zachary, who used to run risk management for Safeway, he always said, uh, that if someone, if one of his injured employees got an attorney, he felt like that was uh, an indictment that he had done a poor job as an employer, because for whatever reason, they felt like they were not going to get represented properly, that they were 
going to get taken advantage of and they felt compelled to get do an attorney. And his whole mindset from a risk manager is not that we have anything against plaintiff's attorneys, but if you bring a plaintiff's attorney in, that means somebody feels like they need to be represented. Why do they feel they need to be represented? Either because you have mistreated them, they have the perception that you're mistreating them, they have perception that you could potentially mistreat them, they've made up their own reality that they're going to get the short end of the stick. And that's why employers need to be proactive and communicate ongoing, you know, with their employees, create, uh, you know, a, a collegial, uh, um, you know, opportunity with them. Same thing with the claims adjusters, you know, know their name, um, know their, know what's driving them, um, know what circumstances are happening at home. You know, all those things are way beyond the three point checklist, you know, the, 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 you know, all the stuff that we do that is very easy to be codified and systematized. You know, this is much more in that squishy area and work comp historically has not done great in squishy areas, but I think we're starting to understand the return on investment on focusing on the squishy uh, means that it's not as difficult or challenging at the end. Um, sounds like I like this Bill Zachary guy. I like him a lot. He uh, is, he is awesome. He's a really great thought leader out there. I'll be glad to introduce you to him. Um, he would probably be a great guest for your podcast. <laughs> so. What's what you said earlier about what uh, what his thought process was? I'm sure you're like me, and you're probably go to Facebook, uh, and there are there are uh, workers' compensation forms for injured workers. You ever go in there? I try not to. I I I have a hard enough life as it is without reading that. So, businesses, if you want to see how poorly sometimes the workers' compensation system is managed, search one of those groups out. <laughs> Become a member. And then just look at what these injured workers post and it, adjusters that don't call them back, pain management, missed appointments, employer won't talk to them. The whole litany of things in there that you just mentioned that Bill talks about. And every person in that group is like, get an attorney, get an attorney, get an attorney. Mm -hmm. And that's all these injured workers here. The minute that a claim isn't going right, get an attorney, get an attorney. So I like that approach that you don't need an attorney. We're going to take care of you. and We're going to do the best that we possibly can. And then if that, if that doesn't happen, there's a failure, then I understand why. Yeah, and it's just an investment, right? It's it's an investment in your human capital. You know, as an employer, it's always flummoxed me why they would tick off someone who does a job that they need to have done that is not there anymore. And either they're going to have to replace temporarily or their colleagues are going to have to pick up the slack. It, productivity declines. Um, the stress and the tension at the workplace increases, all because um, you're not focused on the right thing, which is helping that injured employee, which again, unless it's HR and you're finding a way to get rid of people that you don't want, they're still an employee of your company. They're still a member. They, they still report to that supervisor. They still report to that manager. How much extra time does it take for that supervisor to text them? And they probably already got his phone, you know, the, the cell phone in his, in the supervisor's phone, right? Probably already got that. Probably texted each other and say, hey, let's go grab a beer after, after work tonight. Something they always did. And all of a sudden they be they they get they get injured, um, and all of a sudden they don't hear from anybody. And so it's up to them to kind of make their own reality. So it's always flummoxed me why employers kind of self sabotage by almost kind of pretending like once it's us versus them. And I think that us versus them, whether it's politics, whether it's family, whether it's work comp, it doesn't matter. Anytime you devolve into us versus them, 
nothing good comes from that. No, I, you just gave me an idea. I, I have a notepad here that I scribble on. That's why my head goes down. Um, you just gave me an idea to come up with a workers' compensation claim checklist for employers to employees. So like, hey, we did the first report of injury. Hey, we've got the doctor's appointment. Hey, check in with Billy and make sure he's doing okay. Like just, yep. just some of those, like have the manager check in, have you know their coworker that sits next to him check in, those type of things. Absolutely. I think that would be a great addition to the checklist because we know the checklist first reported. I mean, you know, it, it literally is a checklist, but having a 1A, 1B, 1C, which dives in a little bit deeper to make sure that you don't get to step 42 and go, how did we screw this up? Well, because we kind of missed the boat on 1A, 1B, and 1C right at the very beginning. I love it. I absolutely love it. All right. So one of the things that I want to talk about as before we run out of time today is marijuana. Um, marijuana. Dude. <laughs> I like how you say that. Uh, more states are adopting marijuana. They're, they're making it legal. Um, it's pretty easy to get your hands on. And it seems like companies are all over the place with their drug testing policies or not drug testing policies. Um, I don't even know where you want to start on this topic because there's so many things, but where do you want to go? Well, I'm, I'm either the Willie Nelson or the, or Matthew McConaughey of work comp. Um, I've been, uh, talking about, writing about, studying about medical cannabis since 2014. Um, and that happened to be a really important year because that's the year a lot of states introduced their own medical cannabis programs, ballot initiatives, uh, you know, even legislative, uh, uh, you know, coming around to that. Uh, the the uh, marijuana industry went five for five in the November 2020 uh, ballot initiatives in, uh, rec in legalizing recreational and or medical marijuana. Uh, South Dakota decided to do five for five. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Are, we're about 20 states now that are legalized marijuana in 2021. Oh, uh, well, it depends on what you call legalization. 15 states and Washington, D.C. have legalized marijuana. So it's 16 states total. 36 states have legalized medical marijuana, according to Business Insider. So... With all those states having legalized it, um, it's still illegal at the federal level. Um, it's still Schedule One. Um, the DA was given the opportunity to re reclassify it back in 2017. They declined to. Um, there's three bills in U.S. Congress that would uh, declassify it or, or, or uh, legalize it, um, would open up financial institutions um, because it's primarily a cash-oriented business, um, and op offer better opportunities from an insurance standpoint. Um, for coverage on that. So, you know, the, the, it's not going back. The latest Gallup poll, as I recall, it was about 66, 67% of, of respondents um, agreed that marijuana should be legal. Um, it's in the mid 90 percentile if you ask if medical cannabis should be legal. So um, the, the, uh, the, the jury's out. Uh, they, they've already, the, the public has already deliberated. They've already figured out that, medic, that medical cannabis should absolutely positively be a part of treatment options and that recreational uh, marijuana should be treated as the same as alcohol. Um, it should be taxed and managed by the state. Um, in fact, uh, there's a variety of different uh, states that actually have revenue items uh, specifically focused on utilizing uh, tax revenues uh, from marijuana uh, to pay for to pay for, in, in the case of Evanston, Illinois, reparations. Uh, there's just all sorts of different conversations about that. So if, if you think that marijuana and cannabis is a passing trend, that it's something that will go away, it's not. It's here to stay. There's billions of dollars 
at stake in the New York Stock Exchange um, and uh, in private equity and venture capital on this. So the question becomes, what do you do about it? Um, I know some employers continue to stick their head in the sand and hope that it's all going to go away. Uh, and I know some that have kind of opened the doors. I spoke to a construction company in Colorado several years ago, uh, and they stopped doing pre-employment uh, testing, post-accident testing, and random drug testing because they couldn't find enough clean candidates. And they still had to build buildings. And so they just didn't want to know or they didn't want to care. Now, you know, Im impairment is impairment. You're impaired from Percocet. You're impaired from Xanax. You're impaired from whiskey. You're impaired from marijuana. The difference from impairment of marijuana is it stays in your system longer. So you will test positive well after the point that you are actually cognitively impaired from it. So that makes it really complicated for employers trying to figure out what they want to do from a, a testing standpoint. Do they want to do pre-employment testing and have a zero tolerance policy? Now, if they get dollars from the federal government, as long as it's federally illegal, they have to have a zero tolerance policy. They don't have any choice in it. If they have CDLs, commercial driver's license, they have to have it. Pilots, truck drivers, they got to have it. But every, everything in between, they can make their own decision. So it really becomes down to a pragmatic business decision. Do you want to have an impairment-free zone? Well, if so, I would argue that you, you, if you're going to treat marijuana like that, then you should also make sure that they're not impaired from any other kind of impairing agents. You want to make sure what, they're, what kind of prescription drugs they're taking, what kind of recreational, other recreational drugs they're taking, what kind of alcohol consumption they're having. If you want to have truly a zero tolerance impairment free zone, you need to take into account everything potentially can impair you. But in other cases, businesses are going to make a pragmatic decision and go, you know, customer service, they're probably not going to hurt anybody. In fact, someone who's kind of mellowed out probably isn't a bad customer service agent. So let's not test them. But for our accountants, we definitely want them because we want to make sure that decimal points in the right place or else we could uh, be a huge, you know, credit or debit issue. Um, you know, if you're safety sensitive issue, if you're driving a forklift in a warehouse, you probably want to have a zero tolerance policy with them because they could hurt themselves, they could hurt others, or they could hurt the product itself. So I think every employer kind of, if, you out, if you're outside the scope of the federal dollars and the CDL kind of stuff, um, it really is up to the employer to figure out what's important to them. Um, and, but I, ultimately, what I have been describing and talking to risk managers about is that you need to figure out what your policy is and you need to clearly articulate it. You need to uh, make sure everybody knows what, what it is. From a claims adjuster standpoint, from a payer standpoint, you need to understand when you get a request for reimbursement, what are you going to do with it? You don't want to have that at the individual discretion of a claims adjuster. You want to have a policy and a procedure, a step-by-step process by which you go through that. So I think, you know, bottom line, what I'm trying to get to is that marijuana is not going away and you have to have a strategy that fits your um, belief system, that fits your business, the pragmatism of your business. You need to strategically think about it, not respond, not react, but you need to proactively figure out what you're going to do with that before you get the first request or the third request or whatever. And you need to stick to your guns, whatever it is, um, you need to figure that out. But I, I think every employer, um, you know, really it's their decision um, and it's up to their corporate culture leadership to figure out what that might be. Do you think we'll ever see nation, national workers' compensation reform? So here's something interesting. Iowa is one of the states where um, that's where I live and we do not allow recreational use of mar medical marijuana at all. And I don't even think we're doing it 
we don't allow recreational use and we don't allow medical use. Uh, and our actual, at the state level, our workers' compensation law says that if you have uh, drugs or alcohol in your system post-accident at the time of claim, it's immediate grounds that the burden of proof rests on the injured worker to prove that their, the drugs or alcohol in their system did not contribute to that accident. And I think we're the only state in the nation that I know that has that kind of language, I believe. But now we're seeing all these states adopt, you know, so everybody uses medical, everybody can use recreational marijuana. But what happens if they have a claim and the THC directly caused that? Like, are we going to pass that, that burden along to employers to pay for that claim? Or should there be some type of ownership of the injured worker using recreational drugs that now causes an injury that the business could potentially be liable for? That's a really good point. And I think it comes down to the work comp statutes and, you know, the policies of the payer themselves. Um, you know, it's a high bar for people to prove um, that they weren't impaired, um, you know, proven a negative. All over the place. Like it's, it's still fairly new and the, the challenges haven't made their way through the legal system. Yeah, that, that seems right for a lot of and, uh, uh, case law precedent associated with that. You know, but I think, you know, you kind of uh, uh, connect it to if someone was drunk, you know, if someone was intoxicated um, through beer or whatever, um, you know, and they got hurt because of the inattentiveness associated with that impairment, um, that's not going to be comp, that's not going to be compensable, um, typically. And I, I think, that's probably that that's going to be what you're going to have to fight through. Marijuana really isn't a whole lot different from an intoxication standpoint. Um, you know, there's a, there's a longer half-life. It stays in your system longer, um, but it slows your motor skills. Um, you know, that's why um, people that are high generally drive under the speed limit as opposed to over the speed limit. Um, you know, the same thing is true for um, alcohol. Um, you know, it's, I always find it interesting when, when drunk people get into accidents, they typically survive the accident. And a lot of it's because I think they're, they're um, so relaxed and, and their inhibitions, you know, the, the, the seatbelt, they're just bouncing around um, because they're cognitively slowed, right? Their, their impairment um, is, is, is slowing down their capabilities of processing information. So whether you, uh, you know, whether you're an accountant, whether you're driving a forklift, whether you're doing customer service, whether you're developing software, you know, whether you're a claims adjuster, whatever it is, if you're slower than you should be in being able to process information, that's an impairment. Um, and if you slip and fall, um, if you make a poor decision um, on the placement of the forklift, and that's because you, you weren't all there um, from, a, from a mental standpoint, um, you know, I, I don't know all the statutes in all 50 states or, or my, my head would have exploded a long time ago. I rely on other people that, that do that. But, you know, you got to understand what the statutes say in regards to that impairment. So what I hear, what I hear you say, and let me paraphrase, if, if I'm a company that has forklift drivers and marijuana usage and alcohol use, well, marijuana use, let's say, is, is becoming more legalized than it ever has before, maybe it's best not to have a drug testing policy but maybe a policy that says, Hey, dear forklift driver, what you do is important and we need you to be safe. Please help us out by mandatory reporting your drug usage. If you think you're impaired or you use this weekend and we'll find a different job for you today until you can come back to work clear headed because that's our policy. Sounds kind of crazy, 
but it probably keeps workers there longer and still protects the business from potential liabilities. Yeah, that's an interesting. I've never heard anybody make that argument, but I could see how that that would develop a rapport between them because, you know, what they do. And this is another subject for, you know, uh, consumption. You know, what you do at home on your own time is home on your own time. Um, The only problem that creates is if you bring those issues with you to work and it reduces your productivity or creates opportunities for um, lack of safety. So, you know, if you did that and go, dude, I, I know, you know, everybody smokes weed in Colorado. It's completely recreational. What you do on a Saturday, I don't care. Have at it. I, I don't care as long as you don't post it on social media and tag us in it. But, you know, I don't care what you do. But when you come in on Monday, if you still got a buzz, let's talk about how we can entertain a different place for you that doesn't have the safety sensitivity of the job that you do. It might be an interesting conversation. I've never heard anybody make that argument, but that, especially in states where recreational marijuana specifically is allowed, um, you know, with medical cannabis, you got to jump through hoops. You got to have prescribers, you know, you got to have doctors that certify it and you got to sign up for the medical cannabis as a, in the registry as a patient, Um, you know, all those different things. Recreational, you just walk into a dispensary and buy something. So I think specifically for states that have recreational available, but South Dakota, which is close to Iowa, I think, um, it's been a while since I've done geography, but uh, they they tried to legalize, they voted, the ballot initiative uh, legalized both recreational and medical marijuana. I think the state's attorney general is is, uh, trying to push back on that. So I don't know if it's for real or not, but you're going to have a state relatively close to you in addition to Colorado um, you know, that's going to have a completely different uh, sense of things than Iowa does. I'm sure there's a lot of HR directors out there that are probably just like, you know, what did he just say? Like letting people say it's okay to use drugs, but it's whether it's marijuana, alcohol, opioids, whatever somebody did throughout the course of the weekend. Uh, I think in any business that I run, if they came to me and said, listen, uh, I know you want me to do this thing today and it's kind of risky and I'm putting other people's lives at stake. I need to check out for a morning or an afternoon or whatever that may be. I would be hundred percent. Okay. With that. What I would not be hundred percent. Okay. With is every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, having that same conversation. And then we either need to find you different employment or a different job within the company because we can't depend upon you. Right. Yeah. That, that, that certainly is a problem. I, I would make the argument that, you know, inattentiveness, presenteeism, absenteeism comes from a variety of different things. Yep. So you could walk in on Monday morning and go, you know what, my kid was in the, in the hospital all weekend, um, you know, had, had an injury. Um, I've been sleep deprived all this time. Not really sure I can kind of put my mind at things. You know, if you've got an honest relationship with that employee, they can come to you and go as a supervisor and go, you know what, I want to be here, um, but I've had, I really had a difficult weekend and I'm not mentally fully a hundred percent doing my job, making good decisions. Um, Can you help me out by doing to your point? That's not something you want to have every Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, but on a periodic. And I think that gets the whole employer employee, you know, paradigm that we were talking about, right. That, that sense of respect, whether they get hurt or beforehand, it comes down to a culture of respect. It comes down to a culture of um, communication, um, you know, and if, if you have a culture of that as an employer, um, you know, you can have these tough conversations that maybe in a, in a normal circumstance, there's no way an employee would ever present to you and go, dude, I got wasted this weekend and I'm just not into it today. 
Um, can I do something else? Um, you know, that would be a conversation that would never happen. But if you've got a relationship with them that goes, okay, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate the fact that what you do on your own time, you had a great weekend. I, 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 I'm, I'm glad that you did, but we're going to need to find something different. I've just never heard anybody, Todd, make that argument before. It'd be an interesting survey to have of employers of how many would be willing to have that kind of conversation and openness. It's a crazy idea. <laughs> <laughs> idea. And I don't, I mean, I don't even know how that would work logistically, but would that be really cool? I mean, rather than force the the worker who is impaired to actually do their job and potentially have a life altering injury to have that worker, to be able to have the channel to come out and say, listen, I'm not right today. I need a timeout. I'll be back at work tomorrow. You know, help, help me out here. Help me help you or whatever that may be. That's a crazy idea, but yeah. Well, and, and part of that too, it gives you an opportunity. Well, we have an employee assistance plan. Are, are you, you know, having issues at home or you having financial issues? Do you have substance abuse issues? You know, that gives you an opportunity to kind of dive in deeper and to help them through maybe something that they're crying out for help. So, you know, that kind of conversation maybe opens up that broader discussion about, can we help you maximize um, you know, your productivity and just, you know, your humanness through that process. That's a, gr that's an absolutely great second step. And I think when we talk about employee assistance plans, I mean, just even right now with COVID people being at home, I, I know it's been over a year, but I still think there's a lot of mental anxiety that runs high with a lot of people right now. And, you know, even in, in my business, I just try to be the calming force and tell everybody it's all okay. If you need to leave early, you need to come in late. You've got a project you're working on that's taking longer than it should. It's fine. It's not what we do is not life and death, and we'll still be here tomorrow. It'll all mm -hmm. be okay. Let's just do the right thing, do the best that we can, and try and take care of those that we serve the right way, and every, good things will happen. Mm -hmm. I believe. I agree with you. So, what else you want to talk about today? We're well, we talked. Yeah, I, I think we're, 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 we're probably done. We, we did talk about drugs. Yep. Um, we talked about biopsychosocial. We went way outside the, the box in regards to talking about, um, uh, let me know um, if you can't make it today. <laughs> so I don't know. What else do you want to cover? <laughs> well, I, uh, I end these with three questions that I'll ask, but uh, if there's anything else you want to touch base on or talk about right now, we can do that before we wrap it up. I think I'm good. I appreciate the opportunity. You know, I, I wish employers um, focused on what they could control and do really right by their employees slash injured workers. I think if, if employers don't self-sabotage, if claims adjusters are willing to go outside the box at times, if prescribers and, and doctors are willing to uh, advocate for the best potential care, um, then I think all the, the, the primary stakeholders in the system uh, will yield better results. Agreed. Mark, how, uh, I know, I think you're pretty easy to find. You're on LinkedIn. Um, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you today? It's actually on LinkedIn, uh, Mark Pugh, M-A-R-K-P-E-W. Um, so feel free to connect with me on there. Um, we also, you mentioned uh, at the beginning, uh, having launched the transitions, uh, so you can also, um, you know, catch me there on the space transitions on LinkedIn as well. And that's really cool. Can you spend uh, 30 seconds to a minute talking about your work there? 
Yeah, well, it's there's this existential threat of old people like me riding off in the sunset and replacing them with the up and coming generation or people who are in college. And so the transitions really is to help the, the industry and not just work comp, but risk managers, property and casualty insurance, really every workplace on planet Earth. We need to think strategically about succession planning. What does that mean to codify the institutional knowledge that may be walking out with the baby boomers uh, uh, retiring? What is it like to bring in the new passion, the new vision, the new way of doing things for the up and coming generation? There are different expectations as far as work-life balance and the purpose and the goals associated with their corporate life. Um, so mixing all that together. So the next decade, because by 2030, everybody's 60, everybody's going to be 65. All the baby boomers are going to be 65. So that's why we've been saying this next decade is really, really important to effectively and strategically, strategically uh, affect that transition uh, from the old guard to the new guard. And uh, take advantage of the information in the in the old guard's head, but don't leave it at the status quo and take as input the new vision and new kind of ideas from the new new generation and create a new workers' comp. This is a, a unique opportunity, I think, for us to reimagine comp um, and to get rid of a lot of the old style ways of doing things like pills and more on the broader scope, bigger picture stuff. We could talk about that. I mean, there's holistic ways, there's nutritional ways, there's a whole different way to care for yourself other than the, the traditional method that we used to have, as well as the work comp system hasn't been modified in some case, two, three, four decades in states. Mm -hmm. It's an old system. Yeah. And, and we've got stakeholders in the system that still do it, even though the statute doesn't say the same thing after three decades, they still do it the same way as the three decades. It's time for a fresh idea, fresh reimagining of this. And that's where I think this is a unique opportunity to blend the institutional knowledge and the new vision of the new generation into somewhat something that is gonna be more relevant and more responsive to the marketplace going forward. Love it. All right, Mark, before we wrap up here today, what are you reading right now? Uh, gosh. I, I read constantly, so I don't read recreationally. Um, it, it's it's a, I wait for the movie to come out. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> um, I, I guess you know I, I scour the news constantly from a political standpoint, from a healthcare standpoint, from work comp standpoint. There's some go tos that I always look at um, to try to um, in, influence my mind and my opinions. Um, probably the latest thing that I have read. Uh, is um, a, a couple of JAMA articles uh, in regards to uh, the ongoing evolving science behind uh, medical cannabis. Uh, so there's just, I, I just constantly read. So when it comes time, um, you know, to finish the day, I basically put it on IFC and watch two and a half men for about an hour and a half. Uh, and that's, you know, that's, that, that's it. That's how I get ready for bed. <laughs> that's a great show. That's a, <laughs> that's a great show. All right. Next question we have for you. What are you spending more money on than you should? Um, probably eating out. Uh, it's, it's a, you know, I, I live in a state, Georgia, that has um, kind of protected personal liberties uh, since the shelter in place was lifted in uh, early May. And so um, we made, my wife and I made a conscious decision to uh, support restaurants, especially local ones. Um, during that time when they could only do dine-in, uh, they could only do carry-out, 
Um, you know, then they could only have 15% occupancy, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so um, I, I was going to do it um, for the duration of COVID. Then I figured out COVID was going to last more than four weeks. It's like, dude, I, I can't afford this. So, um, but we still like to go out to eat and support, especially local restaurants. Um, we do go to, you know, to the, the, to, to the big boy restaurants, the chains and stuff. But we, we like to um, help out our neighbors um, who really have struggled over the past year to pay the bills. Um, and fortunately in Georgia, most of them have been able to stay open. Uh, certainly not the level of closures that I've read about in California or Illinois or New York that have been locked down a lot longer. Um, but still, I, I feel compelled to, to continue to help neighbors. So I guess long answer to a short question is probably eating out. Um, but there, there's somewhat of an altruistic, I guess, um, method behind my madness about doing that. I like the altruistic initiative that you have. My favorite thing is to go out to eat just with a group of friends and the camaraderie and good food and good conversation. And one of my, one of the things that I enjoy. All right. Last thing for you today. What's uh, what piece of advice would you like to leave with our listeners today? Own it. Regardless of who you are, regardless of your stakeholder, own it. You're not a victim. Uh, you're not uh, completely at the whims and devices of everybody else in your life. You have personal accountability. You have personal responsibility to make your own decisions. So whether you're a claims adjuster, whether you're an employer, whether you're an injured worker, whether you're a doctor, I don't care who you are, own it. Don't cast aspersions on anybody else. Don't claim victimhood. Say, this is my decision. This is my choice. This is what I'm going to do and go for it. And sometimes those decisions are going to be good. Sometimes those decisions are going to be bad. But ultimately, what I... What I tried to teach my kids when they were growing up is to, is to not count on anybody else, but to count on yourself. Um, not that it's a bootstrap that it's, you are your only, uh, you're the only person responsible for you. Um, but I have learned over time that I'm, I'm the one that cares the most about me. And so ultimately, if I'm going to make decisions, I'm going to make it based on my input and not based on, um, you know, uh, hoping that somebody else does something for me. So own it, just take advantage of it, be aggressive, be assertive. Don't sit back in the passenger seat, sit in the driver's seat and own your life. I love that. That's great, great advice. And that's a great way to wrap up this episode of the Comp Effect Podcast. I wanna thank you all for joining us. Mark, it is always fun to talk to you. And I sincerely appreciate you coming on today and sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you so My much. My pleasure, Todd. Thanks so much for the opportunity. All right, everybody have a great and fantastic day and we'll see you next week.